0: the first uh, of this term CMS colloquium series, CMSW colloquium series. Um, There's a really fantastic lineup, um, which uh, if you haven't seen yet, make sure to visit the website. uh, Every Thursday we're here from 5 to 7. So I'm uh, really excited uh, to have Miguel here today. Miguel is at the Aichi University in Copenhagen where he's an associate professor. And so some of you may put the pieces together and realize that we were actually former colleagues. <laughs> Miguel, <laughs> and I, Miguel was there from the minute I got to Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. So uh, yep. I was really fortunate to get to know Miguel for a number of years now. He's here uh, in the U.S. for Indicate, which is happening in New York City. So when I saw he was going to be just a train right away, I li- made sure to <laughs> bring him up here. He's a real groundbreaking scholar in our field and really covering terrain that we need more people to cover and right now he seems to be one of the only people doing it so I want to give you a highlight of a couple of his books Uh, the first book that he produced it's with MIT press was called the ethics of computer games which was taking head-on thinking about this issue of ethical playing games what they can and can't do—really groundbreaking work—and he's most recently published *Beyond Choices: uh, The Design of Ethical Gameplay*. I think this is a series. Is William involved with in this series? No. William that's. Oh, that's a different one. That's a different okay. one. Yeah. So this one's also MIT Press, and thinking—I would say, I guess, from my looking at it, a lot more about sort of design yeah. and ethical gameplay. And I think again, the great thing about Miguel is this isn't—you uh, know—his approach is not like. GTA is bad. <laughs> it's a much more sophisticated, more really interesting handling about thinking what kind of games and game that play can, how they can work on us as ethical beings and how we can interact with them in these ways. So uh, he, uh, he's giving us a talk today, I think from some work, new work he's, mm-hmm. he's polishing, play uh, in the Age of Computing Machinery. I'm
1: really interested to hear what he's up to. So. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a it's an honor to be here. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's. Tia um, has said everything there is to say about me, more or less. Um, what I'm going to be talking about today, it's uh, it's a little bit of of new work, and I'm going to test and use some ideas. Um, so. Please feel free in the Q&A time to say, like, you're totally wrong, what are you doing? It's insane, you, you cannot read stuff. Um, <laughs> because what I'm going to present today, it's a, it's a reflection of the relation between this activity or this um, way of being in the world we call play, which is ubiquitous and, and very popular, and it's, it's, I would say, at, at the center of our uh, culture, but we really don't know what it is. Um, or we, if we do know what it is, we never get sort of an agreement on, on, on what is it that we actually mean. And I'm, I'm going to try to explore what is that play can be and how does it relate to computers. My hypothesis is that play and computers are deeply, intimately connected, and that explains many issues on, on our um, contemporary culture, and I'm going to try to sort of figure out all of those. And The reason why this talk for me is a little bit experimental is that um, because I was invited at MIT, which you know, originally is this, this uh, engineering school, I decided to talk about literature, which is something I haven't done in a really long time. Um, so I'm going to articulate uh, this talk around the uh, pieces of literature. I hope you have good Wi-Fi, so you can all go to uh, the Wikipedia to figure out uh, what, I, what is it that I am referring to. Um, anyway, um, and this work, TL has already introduced... Um, but this work um, has to or it 's connected with a forthcoming book called Play Matters, which is a, a tiny book in the playful thinking series um, which it 's a, it's a sort of a, a manifesto for a new understanding of play it 's not really new because nothing can be new it 's a very romantic take on play but it 's a, it's a materially romantic take on play uh, so part of the theoretical uh, groundwork that I do in this in this talk uh, comes from that book. It should be out in uh, September. And I'm going to cover um, a number of topics today, uh, which is, as I said, basically the relation between play and computation or um, not only computers as machines, but also computation as an idea or as a model of of engaging with the world, as an ontology, if you want to say so. Um, and I'm going, so, so the way in which I'm, I'm trying to sort of figure this out is first to define three modes of expressing the world, and for that I'm going to use literature. Um, and then I'm going to use them to, as lenses to figure out, play a submission, um, particularly submission to an idea of, of, uh, of a computable, understandable universe, uh, play as resistance, um, and finally play as computational expression. But not exactly in that order. So so let me start. Um, and as, as I said, this is all experimental work. Let's see how it goes. But I would, So the first thing I would like to do is to... Um, Go back to my roots. I'm, I'm. My background is in philosophy, but I also had, a, a, I guess, a, a minor in in literature, um, comparative literature, and I guess I ended up um, in game studies for some. Well, you know, now, now that nobody's listening, I ended up in, in game studies because I like reading too much. Um, and I thought, that sort of, being a professional reader, being a professional literature scholar, would be terrible. Um, so I thought that, you know, games is more entertaining, uh, and then I, I'll keep my love for literature. And I haven't done any kind of literature studies for the last fifteen or more years, twenty years maybe. Um, so what I'm going and now, I'm, I'm really nervous because I'm going to talk about books. But um, but these are books I, I deeply care about, and I think they are a, a very very good metaphor or lens to see or to try to understand the relation between play and computers. So the three books I'm going to be talking about today and I'm going to use to explore um, play and computation are um, of course I'm Spanish so I had to talk about Don Quixote it's, it's, otherwise they take the passports from me and I become, I don't know French or something like that. Um, so Don Quixote, it's uh, you probably know the story, it's, it's the story of this um, uh, low nobleman, so he was not very rich nobleman in, in Spain. it 's it's published in 1605 and 1615, uh, first and second part. And the, the beauty of Don Quixote, is, is, is this a story of, of the man that goes crazy because he reads too many books, And he thinks he becomes uh, a knight or he thinks he 's a knight, and then reality is constantly clashing against his fiction or his imagination. Um, however, um, when you read Don Quixote, it's, it's, it's a very empathetic book. By the end of, of the second part, you are, you're realizing that it was not Don Quixote who was the fool, it was the world that was the fool, because they didn't understand Don Quixote's foolishness. And the, and the tragedy, the reason why it's a, it's a comedy book that ends in tragedy is that um, he recovers his sanity in the last, the last pages of the book. Bu- the book literally ends with, his, with uh, Don Quixote's death and, and, and by the end of the book he recovers his sanity and as a reader you, f- you figure out it's, it's a sad ending, right? He, he, he should have died a fool that had created this beautiful world where windmills were giants. What a beautiful world he created. Um, Don Quixote will be... The, 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 sort of the metaphor for creative and, and resistive play, based on a particular instance of the books. The second book I, I would like to um, talk about, which is one of my favorite books of all time, it's uh, The Life and Opinions of, of uh, Gentleman Tristram Shandy. I'm going to be talking specifically about the character of Toby Shandy, uh, which is uh, Tristram Shandy's uncle. And who was injured in a battle, and and is obsessed with the, his physical injuries in that battle. Um, and Toby Shandy it's a, it's a very it's a very nice character that um, Lawrence Stern writes about him in a very again in a very empathetic way. But unlike Don Quixote, who's a who's a sort of a, a rebel and a creative um, fool that that we feel pity because he loses his his. Insanity at the end. Uh, Toby Shandy is a pathetic character. He's he's a he's a comedic pathet- pathetic character because his 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 attempts to make sense of the world of, of the world they always break down. They never end up making sense. Um, and f- now this is going to be fairly interesting. I see if I can make the argument that Toby Shandy helps us explain gamification. Uh, there you go. Um, <laughs> And the final book, but that's where I'm going to be starting from, is Ulysses, um, Joyce's masterpiece, and um, it is a, a sort of a you know pretentious piece of work, but it is really really interesting when we think about the what what actually uh, Joyce was trying to make, which is to, to create, to really create the reality of one day in one particular location, just using language as. As an engine. So instead of, the reason why I, I claim, the reason, and probably others have, have claimed, I, I haven't done my, my proper literature research, uh, but the reason why Ulysses is, is, is uh, another turn of the screw in the history of the novel is that instead of using language to, 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 to show what the world was or what the world is, it uses language to create the world. A world that maybe already exists or not, but it, it injects reality in that world. It, it generates the world. It's a matter of, of generating through language. I would claim that um, well, Ulysses, or Ulysses explains uh, many things about the way we understand computers and about the way we understand um, computation and play in the world. So these are um, the three axes or the three lenses uh, through which I'm going to try to explain the relation between play and computers. And why is it that as soon as we... Uh, as soon as we have computers, we start playing with them. Because that's the other thing, right? I'm going to, I also want to, to, to give a historical overview of the relations between play and computation, because if you think about the history of computers, not, and I, of course I'm, 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 pay, I'm, I'm playing a little trick here, right? So the history of computation goes back to, to uh, Babbage and, and uh, Lovelace, right? But... But the history of computation, as I understand it here, is going to be the history of the machines that we use for computing, the history of, of computers. So, but computation just sounded better, right? Play and computation. So this is a, what's the relation between play and computer? So the interesting thing is that as soon as we have computers, we want to play with them, right? Um, if it wasn't for World War II, we would probably have video games before, But the first time, as soon as we had a, a computer powerful enough to simulate physics in roughly real time, what did we do? We built a computer game for it. Because we think that this machine actually allows us to play with things. Of course it allows us to, to do many other activities. But, but the reason why the computer is interesting, among other things, is that we can play with it. Already from the start, we are thinking that computers are interesting machines to play with, or to help us play with. They are kind of toys. Space war. Very, very early in the history of of modern computation, uh, we have a game built for it. And the history of the evolution of of computing machinery and the evolution of games and video games is surprisingly parallel, if you look at it. As soon as we had... um, um, Mainframes that, that could distribute uh, information around, people started writing text adventure games and distributing them. And that's when we had Colossal Cave. So we had network computers that could transfer data from one point to, an, uh, point to another and interfaces that allowed us to uh, write and respond. So what did people do with that? They built a text adventure. Because, well, if, if we have a computer that can do those things, what they're used to or what better used to put that computer on that, that, that making a game for it. And then uh, networks came, became better and more stable and more precise, and then we had mods. Because what can you do with computers that are networked? You can play together with other people at the same time. The history of play and computation always goes hand in hand. We developed technology for storing data in optical media large amounts of data in CDs, and we start developing technologies for fast and um, relatively affordable 3D rendering, and what do we have? Mist. What can we do with these beautiful rendering engines? We'll have a game. And of course what happens when networking becomes even more ubiquitous and w- much more the, ban- the, the bandwidth extends or multiplies what happens when, when we actually have that development in technology we move into MMOs what can you do with computers that are networked with uh, sufficient bandwidth that you can transmit all these data you build an MMO so people can play together and then the evolution of computation and, and our of computing machinery and the ways we think and the ways we use computers evolve. So we also use these networked computers to relate to each other. We build social networks. And as soon as we have social networks, we develop games for social networks. Because what's the point of Facebook if not playing games with your friends? Again. We have an evolution in computing machinery. We have an evolution in, in computer uses as well. We create games for that at the same time, almost. So what's going on now? One of the things, right now there's many things that are exciting and fascinating, but right now I would say we are living in, in, in an era of increased bandwidth. And what, are, what do we do with increased, even more increased bandwidth? We not only make games but we broadcast us playing games. It's so meta, it's brilliant. Uh, so it's not only about using these machines to play games together, it's about performing games for other people. It's a spectatorship, it's, it's sports, it's, it's showmanship, it's all those things. And again, this evolution in the ways we play with computers happens because computers evolve. Now, the, my, my argument is that the, the evolution of computing machinery, the evolution of, of technology, and the, the uses of, of technology, it's always hand-in-hand hand with the evolution of play and the things we do to play. Um, I, of course, I know that uh, things like Twitch TV are not new because anybody who has played um, multiplayer games in, in local area networks knows that they are all about the, the, sort of the showmanship, right? Um, the spectacle, the, the showing others how good you are. But this changes the game because it allows us to uh, broadcast to the world. And the same to all the other previous examples. As soon as we have an innovation in technology, as soon as we have computers that can do something interesting, we play with them, we play through them. Computation and play are hand in hand, historically. Um, so let's try to untangle what is this relation between play and computers. And, and now comes the part in which I'm very, very nervous, because um, I'm at MIT, and I'm going to tell you what computers can do. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's going to be a, a rough simplification, but it's going to be also, and it's going to be very tendentious. I'm, I'm driving you towards where I want to take you. But let's think about computers as these very, very silly, dumb machines. Because that's what they are, right? They are silly, dumb machines. They, they, what we can do with them is beautiful, it's marvelous, but they, in themselves, they are fairly, fairly stupid. Um, so what is this that these machines, these stupid machines, what is it that they can do? So in essence, they can do four things. Um, they can perform calculations really fast and very precisely. Calculations that it would take humans a long time and it takes seconds or less Uh, for a computer to perform. That's one thing that computers are really good at, that humans cannot do. And this is one of the things that we are benefiting from in terms of of playing with them, because computers um, can run all the complicated mathematics of of complicated games in the background without us caring about um, how to do that, that calculation. So computers are just calculating machines. They are calculating machines that are also excellent at storing and manipulating data. So you can put lots of data on a computer and you can manipulate it. The ways you manipulate it, that's a different story. But the machine in itself, it's a calculator that can store and manipulate data. Again, speed is here, it's it's one of the characteristics. It can do this very, very, very fast. It can also um, sense the world. Now this is, of course, a a relatively modern... um, uh, evolution, but it's, a, it's one that I would like to highlight because com- modern computers have the capacity of taking analog input and translating it into digital uh, data that they can calculate. A computer is not anymore uh, a dumb box, it's actually fairly aware of where it is and, and what, it, what, is, what, what kind of environment it is in. Right, It senses location, temperature, uh, it has a camera with which it can see, it has microphones, all of those things. So computers can also have a sense of the environment, a sense of the world. And finally, um, computers can network. We can build networks of computers, so we can take all these very, very fast calculators that can store lots of data, and we can put them together in a network. Increasing their capacities. Now, my claim is that these four characteristics drive us to think in a very, very particular world, about a particular way about reality, about the world, in what I will call um, the Ulysses paradigm. When we think about computers, we are thinking in similar ways as uh, Joyce did uh, through Ulysses with with um, language. So. When we think computationally about the world, we are thinking about turning the world into computable data that we can store and manage. We are thinking about a world that can be sensed, yes, but then translated into computable data. That's exactly the same thing that... That's the the same reduction, ontological reduction, that uh, Joyce wanted to do in Ulysses. He wanted to... Or he used language pushing the limits of language, that's true, but he he pushed the the limits of language to create a particular reality, the world of Dublin um, in 1916. Um, That's what we do with computers. If we want computers to actually help us live in the world, we need to let them create that world, or we need to create that world for them. They are ontologizing machines, if you want to put it that way. Like Ulysses' or Ulysses' is is an ontologizing uh, piece of literature that creates a world, computers need to have a world created for them, but they also create a world. They create a world that is computable based on data, based on networks, and based on the translation of analog inputs into digital data. Now, interestingly enough, uh, that's the same thing we do with play. Right? I'm, I'm going now to invoke uh, the magic circle. Oh, now I duck and cover, because game scholars in the room are going to start throwing things at me, and it's great. Um, I'm, I'm going to invoke the historical idea of the magic circle. Now, uh, what Wiesinger was trying to say uh, in a generous read, reading of, of uh, Homo Ludens with the magic circle was that the purpose of play is always to create... A sense of reality or a reality in itself. It builds the world. Now the magic circle would be a formalized uh, structure that helps us see what play does, right? It's the stadium, the arena, uh, it's that location where we step into and then we play. Uh, But the idea behind the magic circle is not necessarily that of a space but that of a creation. In fact, it's actually a co-creation, right? When we play, we play together. We create this world to play. So here's an interesting analogy between Ulysses as a creator of realities, computers as a creator of realities, and play as a creator of realities. When we play, we do exactly the same as computers do with the world, and we do exactly the same as Joyce did with Ulysses. We generate a world in which some actions are relevant, some actions are irrelevant. That can, but these actions are meaningful within that context, computable, and they are also um, sort of uh, um, uphold by their own um, nature. So, so this idea of, of the reality of play, right? We, or, or the the game that we all all of us play together, and we uphold all together by playing. So here's my my first uh, connection: the Ulysses. Paradigm is the connection of computers as creators or or ontological machines and play as an ontological activity, creators of worlds. What happens when we play games with computers? Well, many wrong things happen. Because, of course, the reason why we have... Every time we have an advanced in, computer ma- in computing machinery, we have play. It's because we see this connection, this ontological uh, uh, capacities of both activities, right? Well, look, this, comp- this, this machine allows me to create these type of worlds, which are parallel to the type of worlds I was creating with my friends playing role-playing games. So let's, ho- let's, let's let, let them overlap and see what happens. Now the problem is when they overlap what we have created is what I would call Huisingian games and this is a less generous reading of Huisinga. The danger of um, the Ulysses paradigm is that <laughs> both for classic play theory and for many takes of computation rules are epistemologically invulnerable. If you read um Fuisine is always saying that you cannot change the rules and you cannot modify the rules, and the rules are truth. Anybody who modifies them, um, anybody who breaks the rules is out, out, outside of the game, because it, it, of course, destroys this reality. He even likes the cheater, because the cheater, in, in a sense, respects these rules. But, but the, the one that, that destroys the rules it's, it's the destroyer of worlds. And it's a little bit the same with computers, Right? If, but the computer, instead of saying it's, it's a person, the machine itself, if you don't give it the rules, the necessary rules, if you don't, if you don't construct um, a sufficiently computable reality, it will complain. It cannot compute, you cannot process it. Um, it has the same epistemological invulnerability in both of them. Now, the danger is computers need to operate in that way because they are fairly dumb machines. But we are not fairly dumb machines. And yet we are building Huizingian games for computers. We are taking the requirement of, of epistemological invulnerability from, from computational rules and we are translating it to the rules we play by. Now this is a problem. And it's a problem that I will explain in a second. Uh, generates all these, all these um, um, Toby Shandy uh, problems with, with play. Now the second thing that they have in common is that uh, both play and computation are about creating but also reducing the world. So that's why they work so well together. Uh, they do so by um, you know, creating this, these magic circles or these circles of magic. Giving you the possibility of bounding the world, of generating reduced worlds. Joyce... Reduce the world to to a few streets in a big city on one day. Actually, not even a full day, right? So, so many hours. That's exactly the same. Uh, and and it's not a reduction, not only a reduction of the world. It's a it's it's a re- required reduction for creation of worlds. We cannot create a one-on-one map. Uh, what we need to do is reduce, but then create. That's what both play and computers do, and that's what we call sort of magic circle or, or negotiated circles. I'll go into that in later on. Um, and then there's an analogy between computable worlds and playable worlds. So, so computable worlds tend to be playable worlds because they have these very clear rules that are sort of fairly similar to the, to the rules we create when we play. And now the reason why I wrote there that computers as language, um, Brian Sutton Smith said that, that one, of, in one of the most provocative threads in, in the ambiguity of play that he never follows through is that what if play is actually like a language? Instead of an activity or instead of, of, of you know, he ends up having this, this complicated evolutionary theory about play, what if play is actually like a language like, like a language, like something that, that, that we use to represent and to create realities with which we interact with each other That would be a far more radical. Uh, project than than any other play theorists have, have pursued in, in at least in, in the twentieth century. It's a pity that it's kind of it's kind of a sideline in, in the ambiguity of play. But but for us, um, you know scholars that are interested in 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 computers and play, that's a really interesting analogy, right? Because computers also require languages to, to generate the, the world and, and computation in itself it's also a way of, of it's, it has the same traits as, as language, if, if you want to put it in a sort of slightly reductionist way. But it has, again, the same ontological um, capacities of language. So this is the first part, and I hope I, I have argued convincingly that the relations between uh, play and computation can be explained through their ontological capacities for creating worlds based on, um, on, on, on computable rules, agreed rules, and, and Magic circles. Now, where does this lead us? Um, to what I would call the seductions of computable play—a situation in which we are now both in theory and in practice. So that is both in game studies as as a scholarly discipline and in game design as a creative discipline. And these are there's a there's a deep fascination in 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 computers and play. And I'm going to try to explain in the next um, few slides why this is slightly problematic. And I'm going to enroll my friend Toby Shandy. Why is it that I brought Toby Shandy here to explain the seductions of computable play? So, if you remember in the novel, Toby Shandy has been injured in his leg um, in the Battle of Namur. And and he's obsessed with that injury. And it, it can never heal. So what is it that he does... He builds he's he's constantly in the novel building a reproduction of the battle of Namur. Because he claims that if he can build a reproduction of the battle that it's as accurate and precise as as possible, if if it actually if he actually reproduces the battle, then he will understand the reasons of his injuries and then he will heal. Now that to me rings a very, very powerful bed in, in, in ways in which we are thinking about play and computation um, in modern times. If we reduce the world to patterns that we can understand, then we can fix the world. Actionable patterns. Simulational patterns. Um, so I will try to explain why computational play it's a. Or, this, this seduction of, of computational play, this submission to compu- computational play as a, as a sort of as a negative thing, um, by using Toby Shandy's obsession. And I'm going to try to do it by specifying three particular seductions. Um, the first one is the first seduction, and this is extremely tempting, is to claim that the world is computable, that we can actually take any situation and turn it into uh, a collection of data that we can process and compute. This is what Toby Shandy is doing, right? He is taking a complex situation, the battle in which which he he was injured, and he is trying to make it computable. Trying to reproduce it in discrete units so he can figure out exactly the reasons of his injury. And for doing that, we cannot but say that computation then should not have any kind of social, political, or ethical implications. Right? If we want the world to be computable, we cannot bring in all those kinds of messes. Because those things, the social constructions of reality, the political constructions of reality, our morality and how we engage with the world, they, they are often at odds with computation. We don't know the reasons Uh, behind the battle um, we we really don't know anything about the battle of Namur except that he was injured and exactly that's why it can be computed and that's also perhaps why he cannot heal Um, so the first deduction is if we think that the world can be computable then this computation will actually overcome or, or be able to ignore all these messes all these non-computable, not easily translatable into, into computational thinking um, characteristics of the world and therefore we, ca- we will be able to build models that will always react with predictability. We will be able to reproduce the world um, in a predictable way. This is the seduction number one. Because computers are so good at Storing, calculating, and producing data—that it's, you know, the clear and uncontroversial outcome of a particular modeling of data. Then anything that can be modeled will actually um, will actually be uh, respond to to that logic. Um, anything that can be modeled will be will become by itself predictable. If we only build this model of the battle. Precisely enough, we will heal our wounds. We are Toby shandis these days. And then, if this is the seduction of computation, what is the seduction of play? Well, what we do when we play is we reduce the world to repeatable patterns. Because that's what we basically play with. right. We, we take mechanics or, or activities and then we, we engage in them and, and that's how uh, we play. We just engage with repeatable patterns that have always clear goals and clear behaviors and clear rewards. This, the world of, of this type of play is always extremely clear because it's um, very, very close to computation. Again, I'm talking about here on on the Ulysses Paradigm where there's a very close connection between what we do with play and what we do with with computers. And this type of play is always engaging. So the the second seduction is play is a way of reducing the world so it becomes engaging and exciting. The world in itself is extremely dull and boring and complicated but if only we play it, if only we reduce it to these patterns that are uh, patterns of engagement, patterns of compulsion, patterns of, of, of pleasure, um, then we will engage with the world in different ways and then we will play with the world. And because play has this history of being a sort of a positive thing, um, then we will get all the benefits from play. So Toby Shandy was not really playing in a classic and conventional sense, but we would say that he was he was building a simulation. He was being very playful with the world instead of instead of you know going to a psychologist because there were no psychologists, he was just building a simulation of the world. He was playing with the world in order to try to, to solve his injuries. So there we have it. Computers seduce us because they can turn all this mess of reality into computable, clear, clean data, a world of, of, of clear boundaries. And that world of clear boundaries can be made engaging and exciting if we play with it. Which leads me to the third and perhaps most dangerous seduction, which is if we can solve problems by computation and if we are always engaged when we play, then computational play should be an agent of change, right? What would, I, what, what would have happened with the Arab Spring if it wasn't for, you know, Twitter and Facebook? Which are, in themselves, fairly playful social networks. And, of course, this is an extended notion of play, right? Um, but better, what would happen if we, instead of work we could play? Earn our promotions as badges... Um, explore explore all this, the, all this sort of grittiness of learning new things by getting rewards and points um, what is What if we actually could you know play through these computationally created worlds and by acting in that way of, of, or by playing in that way, we would change the world right so the third seduction. Turns the idea of a computational world, couples it with the notion of play, and claims that because of the increased engagement and creative capacities of play um, through these computational machines, the world changes. Now, my question here is, and it's, you know, I know what I'm going to answer is, (laughs) what is this play? What are we thinking about when we think about this this reduction to models, this reduction to patterns, computational, computable patterns of computable calculated engagement? Um, there's, a, there's a Brazilian um, critical theorist, um, Paulo Freire, who wrote about the banking model of education. He basically, he was, he was claiming that the problem with education is not teachers and it's not students, is the, the whole model behind it, in which we go to classrooms where there's a teacher who act, acts as a bank, the teacher has all the knowledge, and the student is it's, um, submissive to that teacher, but goes to that teacher and extracts from the teacher the required knowledge. The teacher is the bank and we go to the teacher to extract knowledge. The teacher is an authority. The game is an authority. The computer is an authority. We are... I would say, talking about, about a, ma- a banking model of play, when we have this, this computational play, this, this, this extreme overlap between a computational world and, a, and, and play that adapts to it, what we are doing is submitting ourselves to materiality. We are not really playing. We are giving a lot of, of um, agency and a lot of, of um, epistemological value to a computerized Playful, perhaps, but a computerized uh, vision of the world that it's interactively engaging or or interesting or challenging, but it's still a place where we go to extract knowledge and be validated by it. We get a badge from this machine of authority. We get points from these devices of engagement. Do we really reflect? Do we really play with them? Or are we just sort of basically pushing the lever to get the peanut? Or the banana, and that's a little bit the problem. I would say Um, what it's what the problem with these ideas of 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 sort of serious games, game for changes, is that it's defining play as epistemically invulnerable. Again, that's a requirement for computers. Uh, They need to have these rules unquestioned because computers cannot deal with um, ambiguity. But then we submit ourselves to that seduction. We submit ourselves to the fact that rules cannot be questioned. Rules cannot be contested. We are not playing with the rules. We are playing within the rules. And that's a marginalized, bounded type of play that will lead us to the repetition of behaviors and activities that externally might look like being active in in play. But it is also very reduced banking model of play, to in which we interact with a particular materiality in order to, s- to extract this, um, this playful enjoyment. Uh, and we can never question it, because questioning the very nature, the very authority of um, the computer game or the play, would mean um, breaking its own validity. This is why... Um, Toby Shandy explains gamification. Toby Shandy was gamifying his injury. He was creating this world that had a logic and once that world was perfectly logically reproduced he would be able to understand his injuries and therefore heal. It's exactly the same type of delegation to machinery delegation to a very specific type of computational play that we are doing with with the bad types of gamification. Where we basically embed a a degree of authority on a material device, on a system that operates in particular ways, Um, we code it with with a nice looking uh, play spirit, because computers and play are always very related, and then we interact with it, giving it the absolute and maximum authority. Now, maybe this is an act of um, maybe, maybe these are actions that change the world I don't know I, I'm, not, I'm not going here to deny the validity of budgets and points maybe there is sufficient data that that changes the world can we call it play? yes, but then I would like to call it computational play and it's a reduced uncritical type of play because there's another type of play. And I think there's a richer way of understanding play and computation. And it's, it's not only richer, but it's also one that allows us to expand the notion of play beyond the limits of, of games and game thing devices and towards other realms of expression. This particular understanding of play, this particular notion of computable play, is really uh, limiting our understanding of of play, it's falling again into the trap of the Huizingian homo Ludens game. The game that happens in bounded environments with clear and epistemologically invulnerable rules. But what if these rules are not invulnerable? What if actually play is something else? What if actually play is a language? What if we embrace the ontological capacities of play and we use it for something else? Like Quixotean play. And this is where I want to close my, I guess, on on, on a positive note. Why is Don Quixote interesting? So, So Don Quixote has a fascinating textual history. It was published in 1605, the first... So it's, it's a book with a sequel, um, which is really interesting. So 1605, the first uh, part of The Adventures of Don Quixote was published. Um, and uh, Cervantes was the first one being astonished by its success. Uh, Cervantes never thought that he would be remembered by Don Quixote. He, al- he thought he would be remembered by a long narrative poem nobody has ever read if you don't have to read it, for good <laughs> reasons. Um, but Don Quixote took off. It became not only a national um, treasure in Spain, but also sort of a, a universal novel, a universal way of understanding the world. In 1614, the sequel is published. And the sequel is extremely interesting because Cervantes, being as, as, as clever and, and playful as he was, he realized... So the reason why Cervantes wrote the sequel of El Quixote was that somebody else had written an apocryphal sequel, so somebody else had written the sequel for el quijote and then he got annoyed and then he wrote his own sequel that actually interacted with with the first with with the with the non-official sequel which is great imagine if if somebody makes i don't know the avengers 2 as a as a sort of a, a spin off and then and then marvel decides to make the proper avengers 2 and then the characters in the avengers have seen the avengers 2 so so that's what happens in el quijote in el quijote 2 which is actually the title, um, Don Quixote meets characters that have read not only the first part of the book, but also this, the fake sequel. So there's a beautiful sequence in which Don Quixote is saying, like, Well, and now we are going this way. And then some characters are saying, Oh, well, but, oh, like you're doing like in, in the book. And they say, What? In the, yes, in the sequel. Oh, then I'll go the other way, and then he actually goes the other way. <laughs> Which is—it's such a beautiful book. Anyway, um, see, like I get—I get carried away. There's a, there's another fantastic sequence that that will help us ex- understand the relations between play and computers. Um, in the world of the sequel of Don Quixote, everybody knew Don Quixote, and then there's these very rich uh, dukes that decide to um, build the world that Don Quixote imagines. So he gets to a particular location um, in, in uh, Aragón and um, these dukes have built the medieval world of chivalry that he was dreaming. So there's princesses and, and he's recognized as a knight and Sancho gets to be a governor in an island and, and all the fiction that he was imagining um, is happening there. But is Don Quixote happy? Is Don Quixote satisfied or or even contempt? No, he's not. That's not the world he's creating. Somebody else is, is putting words in his own madness. Somebody else is recreating his madness, which might not be madness, but just a way of appropriating the world. So he leaves. He decides that that's okay, and it's very nice, and it's very cute that you create this world based on my fantasies for me, but I'd rather create that world based on my fantasies on my own. That's why I'm crazy and you're not. Or maybe that's why you're crazy and I'm not. Because what Don Quixote was feeling was that whatever the dukes were doing was just constructing this alternative world based on his madness, but a world in in which he had no agency. He had no creative capacity. He was not generating that world. It was a banking model of craziness. We're here, going to this world, we've built it for you, you can be crazy in here. And Don Quixote refuses. He wants to create, he wants to, to build the world that he's imagining. And that's exactly what we do in Quixotian or Quixotean play. We are creating um, worlds constantly. And we are doing so not by following strictly the rules of the worlds we are given... By, but by acts of submission and rebellion. To play, it's to submit to the world as much as it is to rebel against the world. My favorite example these days would be Twitter bots. What a wonderful social network, Twitter. Right? It allows us to express our deeper inner feelings in 140 characters. So when we have this ubiquitous sort of amplifying machine called what is it that we do with it? We build automatic machines that post in it. We take over this social network and we make it an anti-social network. We make it a network for automatic machines that talk to others. Actually, they talk to other machines. We do not embrace the insanity of having to express ourselves in 140 characters. We take over that world and we show its own... We show, we show how we actually can feel empathy and love and sorrow for bots that are not bots, like horsey books. Or we can actually find humor and creativity and, and passion in, in these bots. We use these bots to take over the world of Twitter, not to act as they... They. It's not, I'm not talking here about the man, but it's, it's more like we are not talking about how the machine wants to act, wants us to act, but taking over the machine and seeing, you know, how does this machine work? How the, how can I make it think in itself? How can how does Twitter think? And then we build a bot and it's a it's a window into um, understanding how Twitter works. It's a playful window. We construct that reality. We take over that reality. We appropriate it. That's to play. Um, so for understanding why Twitter bots and all other types of, of behavior are, are this, this sort of Quixotean play this play of, of submission and rebellion this play of craziness and, and, and sort of creative uh, explosions that build worlds I have a, a tiny uh, theory of play which is it's what's going to be sort of further explained in this forthcoming book but, and everybody has defined play, right? I guess we've all in the room, we've defined play at some moment. So this is my definition of play. Uh, and I have a slide to back it up. So, so this is what's yeah. right. Um, so the four characteristics, I'm, I'm, I think, helps us understand play in a different way, in a way that allows us to rebel against computational play play in a way in which we can engage with materiality without submitting to materiality, to computational materiality, is by thinking that play has four characteristics. Uh, And as you can see, there's only one that is remotely connected to to the old theories of play. So the first uh, characteristic is that play is always appropriative. To play is to take over a particular situation, to modify it, to recreate it, to, to turn it around, to spin it. And sometimes we are going to take that situation and we are going to appropriate it and then submit to those rules. But some other times we are going to appropriate it and really build a new world around it. Skater, uh, uh, so The skater culture is one of my favorite examples of appropriation. where Even though you, we tend, like the dukes in Don Quixote, we tend to build these nice environments for skaters to, to, to skate... They always, they will always take over the world, and they will show us how the world is full of playgrounds, how to take over the world, how to sort of resist those other temptations, and how to generate this new world. So play is always appropriate. The second is play is always expressive, or sort of more subtly, pl- uh, more subtly put, play is always um, uh, it has this generative. Ontological capacity of of creating uh, worlds through expression. It's a little bit like... like, Well, it's not a little bit. It is language. So through play we are expressing ourselves. We take over a situation and we are expressing ourselves or a particular um, set of ideas or of values or principles. So it's always, therefore, deeply personal. Play is always a personal expression. This means there's no... Detachment. There's no magic circle. There can be exploration of the self, but it's always a very, or it tends to be a very uh, personal way of 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 engaging with the world and of creating the world. And finally, play is always autotelic. Play is always for a particular purpose that stops when we are not playing. Uh, but that pr- that purpose, so so. Um, the idea of autotelic play playing with its own purpose is that in that's the characteristic that you can find in, in classic play studies, but we always thought of of the autotelic nature of play as absolute, right? We are playing for play's sake. And in my approach I would say we are playing for the sake of playing we have agreed upon and we are we keep on agreeing upon. It's not a consolidated thing that exists and it's determined by the rules, but it's something that we are constantly negotiating and situating and engaging with. So the purpose of play is to play, but we are always discussing what the purpose of play is. It's a, it's a process of co-creation. Um, it's a process of discussion. So we know when we stop playing, because it's an autotelic activity, we know when we cease the activity of play, but the boundaries, the, the purpose of it, it's not predetermined, but it's a, it's, it, it's a process of reconstruction or discussion. Um, now, what interests me about this, this idea of play is that it helps us see play way beyond games and in other activities that are um, much more interesting to me. Because if you think about the history of, of um the quick history of games and computers that I put at the beginning of, of this talk, it was always, well, we had these computers, then we tried to overlap ways of playing to these games. We are never trying to take over the machine. We are always submitting to the machine. But if we think about play as sort of an appropriative and, and expressive way of, of being in the world, then other activities that are related to technology, not only computation, but technology in general, become really, really interesting. For instance, lots of... Contemporary art. Modern art. So Nam June Paik and, and his, um, his work with technology, it's a playful appropriation of technology. And that is, I think, one of the ways in which we can, we can understand a more creative and a more subversive way of, of thinking about computation and play in, in the modern world. Um, which is, we are not necessarily having to submit to an idea of... of epistemologically invulnerable play, but we are going to create and engage with technologies in a playful way. We are going to take over these technologies and through them playfully create a world. Not based on the characteristics of the technology, not based on the characteristics of the the devices, but based on the characteristics of play. So instead of deriving the ontological capacities of... or, or Instead of of taking the ontological capacities of of machineries or or computers and building play for them, it would be using play as a way way of creating the world sustained or supported by computers. Um, And I think, so this is the interesting thing. I just want to res- rescue computation here. Because if you think about the idea of computation, what computers do is actually they are playing with machines. right? So, Turing machines, and this is a little bit of a stretch of the, uh, of the notion of the Turing machine, but isn't a Turing machine a machine of appropriation? It takes these circuits that can process binary impulses, and they, they, it, they appropriate it to take it and, and to turn it into any possible machine. So, so, computers in themselves, they are doing, not necessarily playful, but they are appropriative machines. Computation is to appropriate binary impulses to be able to construct machines. Not even, not even computers, therefore, are um, non-appropriative, right? Not even computers are, are sort of surrendered to, 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 to sort of these, these rules, right? Computers are, by definition, uh, machines of appropriation. And that's why we can use them for appropriation. Um, this is my favorite example, and I'm, I'm almost finishing. This is an art project that to me explains very well what, what the idea of appropriation and expression through uh, through play uh, in this era of comput- computing machinery. So Newstweek, um it's over there. It's an art project by, uh, from 2011 by uh, Julian Oliver and Danja Vasiliev, who are... Two of the three members of a group called, or they call themselves critical engineer, engineers. And it's a, it's a really interesting, tiny, self made, f- fairly illegal device. Um, <laughs> but you know, those are always good. Uh, which is basically a, a network um, package sniffer that is designed to be located in, in public open Wi Fi. So, so you connect the new tweak machine where there's a public open. Uh, wireless ne- network and then it will modify the headlines of news sites. So if, if you go to a Starbucks where there's a news tweak device installed um, and you go to say the BBC or the CNN web-, web page, the headlines will be modified. You will not be able to read the proper headlines. Isn't, isn't this exactly what computers should be doing playfully? Like we are relying our, our trust in, in these networks of computers that, that will process the world for us. Um, and we are trusting them that they are true. And then, then comes this machine that shows us any, any network, any computer can be appropriated. And haha, it's for fun. We are making fun of you. Don't trust them. It's a, it's a strong political and it's a strong aesthetical message. And it's a very, very deeply playful one. They take over, they appropriate the very notion of computation, the very notion of, of, of this epistem- epistemic invulnerability, and they turn it around. They play with the computer, but not against the computer, right? They require deep technical knowledge to perform this, this hack they require the collaboration of the machine, but not the submission to the machine. It's, it's both an exploration of our own submissions to uh, networks and the truth of networks, but also it's an exploration of what computers can do when we actually play with them, when we actually turn them around, when we don't see them as, as objects of consumption, but as objects of production. And that's what play does. It allows us to see computation as production and not just consumption. So what is my claim? So my claim is fairly simple at this stage. I would say that in our world, in our modern world, play is probably the dominant way of being in the world. It's, an, it's a mode of being in the world that right now it's fairly dominant. We or at least we have this kind of um, positive idea about play. We like that things are playful. We like that things look like games. We have a high we have a high uh, pedestal. The idea of play. We we really want our so- uh, our culture and our society to be playful. Um, and um, if this is true, which I think it is, and if we can claim that perhaps we should see play as, as the way in which we dominantly engage with the world. Then we should also see computation in itself as play, right? As as a way of, of modifying or, or understanding the world. Um, but we should see... So there's, a, there's this theory, or there's this fantastic knowledge, uh, concept in in a philosophical discipline I work with called information ethics called the re of reality. And, and the claim is that um, information technologies reontologize the world. They have taken an analog world and they, they, they have reontologized it so it becomes a digital world. And the information ethicist's argument is that it's computers that have done that. Now that's the part in which I disagree. Or maybe I want to disagree. I want to be polemic and push an agenda. I think we can think about play as a reontologizing activity. That's what we do when we play. It's a way of taking over the world and make sense of it. It's a way of, of, of putting all these really deeply complex assemblages of, of people and technologies and situations, and, and the glue that puts all these assemblages together, the, the thread that keeps them together is the will of play. The will of play as an appropriation, as expression, and as negotiated autotelic uh, activity. So that's my claim, that in the era of Computing machinery, we need to think about play as the way of constructing these computational realities. Not based on what computers can do, but what playful computers can do. Or, as I would claim, what we need is to live on the era of Kixotian computation. Like Don Quixote, we need to refuse the fact that whatever the computer says is true, that the computers are epistemologically invulnerable. Even if they are, let's try to find where they crack. Let's play with them. Because that's what we've been doing before computers all the time. We are building these complex assemblages. So let us all be a little bit crazy. Let us all be a little bit like Don Quixote. And whenever the pleasures and the seductions of computational play are driving us, let's resist a little bit and say that this is our madness. And not some kind of imposed madness. We want to be crazy. We don't want to be told that we are crazy. Thank you.
2: So um, I totally agree with the last part of your <laughs> talk.
3: That, that, that's how play operates.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and that it's a human thing and it's it's sort of what we do. But I'm I'm confused as to how in front of computers or computer games that those same humans are suddenly the impoverished for an impoverished model of humanity instead of the same, mm. like, autotelic playful people right. in the face of those things. Yeah. Um, and in particular, I, I wonder if, if, like, your, like, capitalist institutions and mm-hmm. computers are actually being fused in your model here and that yeah. that it's that, that computers actually themselves don't do that to people, or they don't necessarily, because, you know, if you talk about materiality, when I am doing improv with my friends, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the scene would be super funny if I ended it by plunging through the floor immediately, Yeah. right? But I can't do that. So, like, yeah. even in that play, I still have to submit to materiality.
1: Right? Yeah, but it's so. There's many things. I, I I agree with you. I guess I guess I'm reacting against this idea of submitting to the game as an object from from which we derive truths that we have to live by so our relation with materiality is always going to be negotiated right we are going to negotiate to which extent the floor is not going to crack to which extent we actually have to play by some rules but that's a negotiation process it's not a submission process and my my fear is that in in many discourses around games, game design and game studies, we are not seeing this idea of negotiation of rules when it comes to computers. They are, because of, the computation, of their computational nature, they, we cannot discuss it. They are epistemologically invulnerable. And therefore, there is no negotiation. We, we need to play by those rules. What we can do is streamline that behavior, so we are actually never facing the, the necessity, the alleged necessity of negotiating. And that's why I would say HCI is so obsessed with this with kind of seamless interactions. And casual games are so focused on, on creating core loops of, of compulsive play. Because if you are engaged in this compulsive play, you are never going to be willing to negotiate, why am I doing this thing, which is what we typically do when we, when we play games so, so, so play is always negotiating with materiality and, and the realities of materiality play a huge role in the autotelic nature of, of play, in the way we, we define what the purpose of, of this activity is and where, where is it taking it and, and so on, but it's, it should be made aware and made present rather than, than hide it into as a, as a natural way of, of this is how computers and play work. So that's, a, I, that's I guess what I'm reacting against, um, which might be a straw a strawman argument, but I'm I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes.
4: I have a lot of really contradictory thoughts right now, so. <laughs> so
1: do I, so now we have to.
5: Um, but
4: I couldn't help but think while you were dropping all the literature references well in, Jorge um, Luis has this story, Dier um, Menard, the author of the Cody. Or um, there's this dude yeah. who wants to rewrite the Cody. Um, and actually, he doesn't want to remake it. He wants to rewrite it. So yeah. he ends up figuring that in order to rewrite the Quixote, you have to live like Cervantes and come mm-hmm. to the countryside. He basically become Cervantes yeah. in order to write exactly the same book as Cervantes wrote at yeah. Um time. The reason I'm bringing this up is you know, when thinking about quixotic play, Quixote play, 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 play um, isn't that just a form of play that is similarly governed by just the same rules as Pierre Menard had to discover to rewrite the Quixote, like isn't ah. isn't trading the banking model play for a model of Quixote in play, just trading a small box for a slightly larger box, <laughs> but celebrating the fact that we are free from the smaller box.
1: It could well be. Um, <laughs> I don't think so, because because the Pierre uh, So the short the short story. It's a story about interpretation. So so the the core of the of the, the short story is how. You know, the original Cervantes text was so poor and so realistic, but Piamenaz has, has this extra layer of richness to it because it's actually written by somebody who, who became Cervantes. Three hundred years afterwards, right? Um, so it's not even tra- it's not trading. So the interesting thing is that I would say it's not trading a box for a, a tiny box for a bigger box. It's actually doing this act of appropriation in the most extreme, radical, artistic way. It's it's taking the original text and, and reshaping it and reappropriating it for a different interpretation. So it's not seeing. El Quijote as a work of authority is seeing it as a work that can be reread and recreated, literally recreated, uh, and given new meaning by the act of, of becoming Cervantes. So I would say that even in the even in in in, in your very good read of. of the problem with Kixodian play, we are still being appropriative, uh, a Pierre Menard type of Quixotean play, it's still being appropriative, creative, and not following the model of, a model of authority, because it's reappropriating the authority, authoritative Quixotean text and rereading it the same as we reappropriate a particular technology, a particular device, or a particular situation and rereading it through play.
6: So, Scott uh, I'd really like to talk, I really sort of. Agree with the dri- where you're going. I'm interested to see where it <laughs> all goes. I want to try a different way of framing it, though. Mm-hmm. You tend to just talk about play broadly, yeah. and I think that maybe because it's work that I'm trying to do is trying. To, I'm thinking that maybe there are have always been different forms of play, yeah. and that one of them is contesting. I e. we enter into a game. Yeah. A game is always reductive. Yeah. We're always submissive. It has its affordances. It yeah. has its virtues. And what's happened is that with through computers. Um, suddenly games have been elevated above other forms of play, yeah. but there's nothing wrong with games as, a, as a, and there's nothing wrong with their reductiveness. It's just that we need to be mindful and begin to again privilege the other forms of play that are not contesting, that are more about creating. Um, yeah. So, and, and, so that it, it, it doesn't sort of suggest that there's a, a negative end state in games. They're right. Just, they just deserve to be sort of more bounded.
1: Basically. Yeah, I... It's, it's absolutely true, and that's why I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm such a fanboy of Sutton Smith, because he actually talks about rhetorics of play. And what I've presented today is a rhetoric of play. It's a very specific rhetoric, rhetoric of play that, that does not think of games as a material-privileged form of play, but as just one more incarnation of the activity of play that has other characteristics so absolutely and, but I guess my, my reactions I'm always reacting against, the, ag- against things I'm not, I'm not a very original thinker I'm a, I'm a reactionary thinker and, and the reason is I, I'm, we live in this culture of games everywhere all the time and I'm so tired of it because I just want to play yeah. and it's like games don't allow me to play and I think that's, the, that's, w- that's what I'm reacting against yeah
3: so just to follow on this thread, um, and maybe to push a little bit further, wouldn't the opposite of a banking model of play, and Mrs. Freire, right? It would be a liberatory pedagogy of play, which would be specifically about teaching people to uh, to create play systems, mm-hmm. or so. In other words, it wouldn't be. It's not about uh, the game designer taking a different approach yeah. or the play. Uh, the creator of the play system taking a different approach to the system they designed it would be about an ongoing uh, praxis of liberatory yeah.
7: play Yeah,
1: um, and that's, it's, that's exactly the type of play I'm very interested in and very invested in which is uh, but that, it, to me it's a, it, i, mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm both interested in the critical theory aspect of it but on a personal side I grew up with role playing games rather than computer games and in role-playing games, the act of negotiation is it's crucial for this libertarian approach. When, when you're playing role-playing games, there's always a human side to it where you're discussing and negotiating and setting the boundaries. It's much more Freudian than than computer games. And I, what I would like then is to push the agenda and see. Well, okay, so given the, the, the ontological boundaries that we cannot really go against of computers, how can we in an- any way have... The type of appropriative play that we can do, and that I can see in the arts, right? That I can see in News Tweak. So, if artists can do that, can, can we have that type of, of playful relation with with computers, uh, more more co-creative, more more yeah, libertarian, if or, l- yeah? Well, I would argue that <laughs>
3: newsjack would be a more appropriate model than News Tweak. So, News Jack is a modification of Hackasaurus that allows anyone to remix the front page of any yeah. news site and then share it across social networks. Whereas News Tweak is something where, so the designer of the NewStweak system is exposing the reader or the viewer to a critique. Uh, right. Yes. A hegemonic news system. Yeah. Whereas NewsJack is inviting uh,
1: people to. Yeah. It's a. It's a much more. It's the other. Yeah. I agree with you on that. On that account. I like. I like. What I like is the subversive, dark play aspect of Newsweek where you don't really need to know that the NewsTweak device is installed. For, for you to. So that's the, but that's because I have an interest in, in dark play or non consensual play, which is a different thing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this actually follows very much along that the lines that you were just going is that when I see you talk about uh, News Tweak as an example of hmm. Quixotean play, my Brain goes to computer viruses, <laughs> and like computer viruses as play. What if, how do you <laughs> feel about that? Because they have a different sort of intent, but they seem to enact similar sorts of appropriations of the system.
1: Yes, there's uh, there's a lot of work I still need to do about this this boundary areas of appropriation, um, and I've I've had several interesting discussions not about computer virus but botnets. Um, with one of the makers of Newsweek, where we, where we were basically arguing that botnets are, are play devices of a dark kind, um, but they, they, it's again, it's a type of play that we are not very used to. It's a different rhetoric of play. It's dark play where n- not everybody who is being appropriated, not everybody who is being played, is agreeing to it. But it's a really, but some some people are playing, or at least appropriating the world. My problem with that is that we've always considered play to be a a, a relatively positive generative um, way of being in the world, or or ontology. We create worlds with it, and computer viruses and botnets are essentially destructive machines. And part of me wants to go against the idea of creativity and, and that kind of positive idea of play, but on the other hand, in the Western world, that idea is so deeply rooted, because it's, it's an inheritance we take from Kant and Schiller that we've, we've, we haven't discussed. And I, I really don't know where the alternative would be. Right? Where, where, where could I root a, a, a proper sort of theory of play that allows for, for the massive destruction and the absolute negativity of computer viruses? Because Newstreet is not absolutely negative. It's only partially negative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, while a computer virus effectively destroys your world, there's very, very interesting examples in fringe games that are exploring very, very destructive uh, behaviors. Uh, but they do so still with the Kantian idea that well, this is this is still a positive thing in the end, and there will be some element of catharsis, or or it's separate and productive, and so on. So, but it's I really like the vocabulary to to figure out how to how to incorporate what I intuitively think it's play um, of the darkest kind, like computer viruses, within this theory. So, but it's a very good question.
7: Uh, I'm really glad you said non-consensual, because that's going to make this Foucauldian discipline and punish turn I'm about to Yes. <laughs> <laughs> really
4: appropriate. Yes. Um, also, this has a
7: lot of setup, so just ride this with me. <laughs> that's all I ask. Yes. So um, I want to bring up Saints Row 4. Mm. Everyone's groaning me now. But if you don't know anything about this, this series, it's generally kind of a, a bounded open world
6: mm-hmm. game,
7: right? And in four, you play a character, you, you are playing a character who is then playing themselves in a VR simulation of a city that was from the previous game. It's very meta, right? And the whole focus of what you're doing in four is to destabilize. The simulation you're in, right? You're attempting to break the VR world by playing within its rules, but playing with its rules, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Its rules are that it acts primarily like the real world, but you have superpowers, so you can pick up a car with your mind and then, you know, (laughs) chuck people off a bridge, whatever. (laughs) And every time you break the rules of the simulation using the simulation's rules, the simulation gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And I thought it was an interesting metaphor for kind of the things that you're talking about. On the other hand, as an actual real-world human being playing that game, I'm literally submitting to the machine to not submit to the machine to submit to the machine. Right? Like, this is very (laughs) at this point. And... But to me, there's great pleasure in that. Right? Mm I am actually getting... A great deal of meaning-making mm-hmm. out of that submission. Yeah. And I and I kind of balk at this tendency to look at, because I feel like we're using the word play to get away from the word game, mm-hmm. which everyone hates now, right? Like, we <laughs> don't understand games anymore. So we're going to talk about play, which isn't games for reals, even though we don't really know, as you said, what play is. Mm-hmm. Yet... I, uh, I, I, but I get something out of that submission, right? And yeah. can you talk about where, what space there is in this model, this rhetoric of play mm-hmm. that you're talking about? What space there is for play that is not necessarily transgressive? Mm-hmm. Because I feel that's really privileged right now. Yeah. That like, oh yeah, we're playing with things, which is basically a f- uh, metaphor for fuck the rules. But I don't <laughs> fuck the rules, right? I'm okay with the rules. The rules let me be this awesome. Superpowered badass, right? Mm-hmm. And engaging that is meaningful for me, and I get something out of this meaning creation process, even though it's a submission to the machine, yeah. right? So I just, but I feel like there's potential there to still, to still for kihokian play that is not necessarily always already transgressive,
2: yeah. as opposed to
7: submissive. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk about if there's space for that in this rhetoric of that you were just describing.
1: I, uh, you're, you're right on the money, and I think, I hope in, in the book, I've opened a little bit or a lot of space for that. the pleasure of submission, because submitting to the rules or uh, acknowledging that, that a game has rules from which we extract, extract pleasure does not go against this idea of, of players' appropriation and, and the autotelic negotiation, we, because we are negotiating... What what kind of submission we are going to engage with? We are we are going to negotiate. Well, I'm not going to break the rules as long as I derive this particular expressive, emotional, mental pleasure from it. So submission is, and and the extreme of submission is, I would say, I'm having TL Here I'm going to. It's competitive play. Right, competitive play is, is the, it's the deepest submission to rules you can imagine, to the pleasure of rules. Because, so, so when I play, I don't play super high competitive, uh, but I play fairly high competitive FIFA. And the pleasure of playing that game in, in that high level is the pleasure of submission. It's the pleasure that at some moment I'm so good at reading the rules, I'm so much better than the other player at reading the rules. At performing in this in this game, that I derive an, a, a really really deep pleasure, physical pleasure from from that submission, from from not playing around but playing by the rules and just being better than the others. Um, so so I think it's the negotiation of submission that often I think it was missing, and in my rhetoric of, of play, hopefully I have I have opened that yes, submission is pleasurable as long as it's. Determined within that autotelic discussion, right, of the p- that the purpose of play is negotiated to be the pleasure of submission to the rules. That's how I would. Can
0: tweet that right now, quick? <laughs> that <laughs> whole thing you just said, because I don't want to lose it. <laughs> I'm sure someone it's been. Recording yeah,
1: <laughs> It's it's been recorded. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the question.
0: I have one. I'm raising my hand for myself. Go back. So um, I, I really love this exploration. It's something, as you know, I've rankled mm. a lot when trying to understand rules and computation. Um, but I'm noticing you do not use a word that I lean on a lot in my own,
5: mm.
0: it, like the esports book, where I'm trying to think through this, and it's culture yeah. and comp- computers as or as not cultural actors. Mm-hmm there uh, are moments I could imagine maybe you could have used the word, but you don't, so I'm kind of
1: curious. I think I I think I haven't used it in the presentation, but I it's just, and probably I okay, so this is terrible. I probably haven't used it in the book as <laughs> either. No, but I, I I I think there's a I'm I'm not against the use of, of the, the culture of computation. Is is that where, where you're
0: so that part of the difficulty or part of our confusion is when we, and I, I really like this idea that we kind of do this overlay that actually doesn't work.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so for me, it's about, you know, again, with, with, with rules, is computers actually can't be cultural actors.
1: Right, yeah. I,
0: and this is tricky because they of course have cultural import and they shape culture, but they are not interpretive cultural actors. Right,
1: and yeah.
0: once you realize that, it's like, of course you're not going to get <laughs> the kind of sophistication, you know? Like, yeah. So... But, but, you but no no tried I'm away from that.
1: Position. Yes and I I actually don't know why but it's just <laughs> no probably it's because f- for me as I said at the beginning it's fairly obvious that computers are dumb machines that they are they are fairly they, they are fairly uncomplicated devices. can, I, can I make another hypothesis? Yeah.
0: I do wonder if it's because your model of play is much more individualistic than mine
1: is. Probably yeah. Probably. I that's a, that, no but that's a very good and I would that's say probably it's a cultural act even when you play alone. Yeah I I I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that but probably my rhetoric of play is much more individualistic okay. surprisingly enough because I come from sort of more collectivist cultures right so I should I should think about oh, they, they, like they, exactly but but it's yeah no but it's true yeah yeah uh,
0: I think it's how Jason
5: um, it's about this though. Can okay. I
1: get you
5: too,
7: So, my question actually would be for both of you. Ah, uh, can computers be social actors to the extent that we empower them to be social actors? In the mm. sense that they are proxy social actors that we give values to, but which I guess lack the human ability to.
0: This is the Latourian move. So they, yeah. are, they are social actors, but I guess part of what I, I wrangle with, and I'm not a theory person, so I want to let the <laughs> to do the hard liquors. It's one thing to be a social actor, and I think it's another thing to be a culturally interpretive actor.
1: Yeah, right. I'd perhaps.
0: That's
1: the, no, no. That's I. That's the
0: best. You know.
1: I agree with you, um, okay. but I would, right however, on. I would say that on some occasions we could, we could give agency, cultural, even cultural agency, yeah, yeah, yeah. to computers within frames that we have agreed upon and that are predefined. So in a sense, the, the object in itself, it's not a cultural agent, but we are allowing it to be a cultural agent within that segment. So I'll go, I'll go to Twitterbots. Right? The reason why Twitterbots works as a sort of almost sentient machines of sorts, is that the, the, the 140 characters bound forces us or, or helps us reading them as these creative, generative devices. But they would never work in Facebook where there's no limits, right? So the, the, these pre-agreed re- limits of the, of, the, of the way we use Facebook, uh, Twitter and the technical limits helps us see, see these bots as, as cultural agents. But once you break that, that level of abstraction, then it's in themselves they cannot be. No.
0: Yes? Yeah.
2: Um, so I, I'm going to play with your talk a little bit uh, in that I, I'm curious about uh, how NewsTweak is not a Toby Shandy act, uh-huh. actually, because it's a remediation of the world that the, the designer mm-hmm. of News Tweak or designers, mm-hmm. want, right? So it's, it's this, it's this simil- similar like imperial act of like trying to control the world in the ways that they can right. uh, through a playful remediation.
1: Yeah. I, so my counter-argument would be the, the reason why news tweak works as a critical device is that we already live in, a, in an imperialized world where we trust these networks. And the object in itself, by refusing to disclose its own presence and its own existence... Uh, by un- disrupting the world in this non-consensual way forces us to reread the world in an un way. So perhaps from a designer perspective it's a Toby Shandy device, but from an experiential point of view, as non-consensual players, it's the absolute opposite. It's, it's the device that hammers or that shows that the world is actually a reproduction, that the world is, is a reproduction in which we cannot trust. So it's an anti-Shandian device for the, for the users or for the non-consensual players. It would be extremely different if it was on, a, on an art gallery. If you put Newstreet on an art gallery, you're totally right on the money. It's a Toby Shandy device. But because it cannot be on an art gallery, when they exhibit it, they exhibit it on a, on a transparent glass, tore apart, and it doesn't work, right? Because that's not the point. And that's the cleverness of it. It can only work if it's non-consensual hidden, and disruptive. If the second you admit its own existence, the second you acknowledge its existence, then it becomes a, a Shandian device. Yeah.
5: First, thank you for sharing the presentation and the provocative thinking. And I have one question and two little examples. The question is, it reminds me of the Stuart Hall's preferred reading theory. Mm-hmm. And is that is everything that go against the preferred reading of the game producer is mm-hmm. what cre him? Mm.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah.
5: Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Right. Mm, n- I I tend to be very um, empathetic about about that approach, right? Yes, against the, the creator. Let's like stick it to the man uh, but that's not true uh, sometimes there is pleasure in 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 submission to whatever the creator has given us and acknowledging that there's a creator that that has put an effort and, and in creating this world i just don't want to take that as a given i don't want a, i don't want an, an authorial model of play where somebody can create play for me if if there's an author and I'm going to admit the existence of an author. I am going to admit the existence of an author. It's a conversation. It's a creation or co-creation of that authorial figure. So it's not necessarily going against them. It's a negotiation and a conversation with them.
5: Uh, yeah. And my little examples. The first one is about Minecraft. If some player are using Minecraft and create a new episode of Star Wars. Yeah. Perfectly, he or she is perfectly
1: good citizen of that game, but that's a creative. Right. So, Minecraft is really interesting because I'm, I'm so, I have, a, I have a crazy opinion about it. Why, why do people call it a game? It's a playground. We hate the word, like the word playground. It's, 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 it's apparently only useful for physical locations full of, of cheap plastic, and that's not true, right? Minecraft is a playground it 's a space where you can build games and has some rules of behavior and some rules that, that determine that you cannot do that thing because if you fall from the slide, you break your arm so you shouldn 't fall from the slide if you go into the water you drown and you can die right so, but it is not a game and I, I, okay i don 't want to go into what a game is, but to me, the best way of understanding Minecraft is as a playground it 's it's an environment created where you can play that's, and that 's why Absolutely. Whatever people can do within a playground, it's part of their intention to play. Uh, Jiang just gave some instruments for people to express themselves.
5: Yeah, and my second example is my roommate. He is going to take his qualification test for the PhD. And after that, he wants to play some games for relax. And so the game is the game. And she, he follows the rule and defeat yeah. the boss. But he may imagine the boss as something yeah. Or the professor. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, here's my question: <laughs> When the paratast came into the the playground, is that toxic? And or I must go against the rules? all
1: right, right? No, but yeah. so so Don Quixote doesn't go against the rules all the time. It goes against the rules when they deprive him of his own capacity for negotiating. What the extent of his madness is. And that's exactly what, what I'm trying to communicate with, with, with this idea of and play, is that we need to negotiate our extent of, of involvement in play rather than, than take it as a pre-given because it's so tempting by computers to, to think that, that they give us a meaning and, and we just interact and we derive pleasure from it. That it's always a process of admitting and, and negotiating and, and discussing it. Yeah, I don't know if that answers. Yeah.
5: Thank you, but if you consider a game as a tax. We always have some way to read read that. Yeah. So can I say every kind of play is cryptic toxic and play? Uh,
1: but yeah, but, uh, but I have uh, I have these problems with the notion of games as text. Probably because I've, I've I'm, I'm fairly close to Espinosa in my office, so it's kind of a rebellion against this old idea of <laughs> games as text, <laughs> kind of. He was also my PhD advisor, so it's just like, kill the father kind of thing. (laughs) But, no, so my problem with the idea of text, when we think about things like games and video games as texts, uh, and I'm I'm going to, because I come from literature studies, partially, I'm going to have a very old-fashioned notion of text. But a text almost implies a particular mode of interpretation, right? Textual interpretation. And... To me, play is that kind of mode of interpretation, but when we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't play text. That's my, and I know that, but now people start throwing things at me, and that's fine. But I don't think we play text. Play is a configurative way of, of making meaning that it's totally different than other ways of making meaning that we have with text. And that's why we have games are games on their own. So if I had to define games, games is anything we play with. So I would define the object by the activity. And texts are things that we read. Again, defining an object by an activity, Um, and it's a very reductionist way of approaching the world. But it works for me because then it allows me to take away the notion of text from the things we play with. Toys are not texts. Playgrounds are not texts. They are things we play with. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I just want to make sure if anybody has a question. Final
7: question. so, um, as long as we're talking about uh, Stuart Hall, may Mod keep his soul. Um, <laughs> well, I was thinking about something I read recently. Uh, somebody using him in terms of fan work and especially critiquing the idea that fan fiction and fan created work that adheres to rather than fights an established hmm. canon, right, is automatically um, a dominant code reading and not a resistant reading. Yeah. Like the, the put forth the idea that you can have something that buys into existing canon, but is still a resistant or negotiated reading because it's playing with you know yeah. different aspects of that canon, and it it made me think about kind of the the effective or the ephemeral dimension of play, mm-hmm. right? And that um, oh, I can't remember if it's Wiesinger or Kellaw that says that play is inherently non-productive.
1: Yeah, both right? both say yeah.
7: Uh, and I'm wondering what you think about that in terms of like uh, in, in it, it, they mean productive in terms of nothing quantifiably comes out of it yeah right which I think the whole world would probably agree is nonsense but just about I'm wondering about kind of the the I got something out of this for five minutes and that but that experience is ephemeral and it being gone is fine right right as opposed to kind of this um, and I have a healthy degree of skepticism on the games for change front right like the mm-hmm. idea that it has to be some sort of long-term, definite, <laughs> uh, even non-material yeah. uh, thing for for trans for not transgressive, but for negotiating negotiated play to have happened.
1: Yeah, I I sh- I sh- I share your. I mean, I think I share everybody's concern with with the notion of uh, non-productive play. It's One of these ideas that it's. It so. The reason why Husserl and Kalwar write about non-productive play comes. The, so this is work I've been rereading lately, and it's very—it's been very painful. So that comes from the first and the third critique of the of the reason by Kant, where he's trying to figure out aesthetics and and all of those other things. So he tries to define play as this separate, non-product. So the way in which Kant needs to separate things, so so to make. To make what's productive and not productive forces into all these binary ideas where play is non productive as opposed to work which is productive. Because he needed this either or ways of understanding the world, right? And then Huizing and Kalois uncritically take that. And then they take it with the positive. R- so there's a, there's a middle step with this, uh, which is uh, uh, Schiller's reading of Kant, which is this idea like, pl- uh, a man is only a man when it's at play, which is this kind of. Play is, is non-productive, but then again it defines who we are at this kind of pure f- beings of joy. And then Huizinga and Calois read this thing, and then, w- which is, I mean, it's very fair, right? Because so Huisinger was this very old classic scholar um, grown in that culture of, of, of um, Central European Romanticism, where he takes it and he says, well, that's true, right? Play... It's not productive, like Kant said, but at the same time, it's a, it's the generator of culture because it's it. And that that contradiction is goes uncriticized. Um, now, what I see in the serious games movement is again this lack of critique of these two positions, right? So, the serious games movement wants to have their 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 shiller and eat it too, right? They want to have this sort of oh, positive idea of play and so on, but the, the the productive side of it, it's not really tied to the activity of play, it's tied to, to an externalized notion of play, and therefore, so so a game can only be a game for change if it creates the Schillerian play of, of maximum exp- uh, development of, of our being and on the other hand it needs to be quantifiable because otherwise how, how do you know that change happens and therefore it goes against the very nature of Schillerian play which comes from the Kantian distinction between the productive and the non-productive and that, that tension it's unresolved right so and they cannot have both you cannot have both because the second you have play in which which i think it's it's a productive thing you're going to have play as, as the production of hurt the production of discomfort the all all kinds of other things that come into that, that productive side that you don't want to have in games for change <laughs> right so so i think that's that's my theory solution of it
0: yeah thank you so much for
1: thanks for thanks for the question <laughs> thanks